Ben Chattel. I'm the associate pastor here. Thank you for joining us again. Thank you that you're all here. Um, for those of you that don't know, this is part five of our series, Way, Truth, Life, Sustaining Grace. So I have the privilege of following up Iron Man, Dr. Stark. Dr. Stark was here last week, obviously not Tony Stark, but Jeff Stark, and he talked about sanctifying grace. Um, he talked about being in timeout, right? He put us all on timeout. He talked about Peter, and when Peter went from walking away after the resurrection of Jesus, kind of going back, falling back into his own routine, going back to what he knew, what he was familiar with, and then that transformation that took place in Peter's life, where now he's speaking in front of the religious leaders. He's speaking in front of thousands of people. He's leading the first revolution post-resurrection. So we've talked about that transformation, but he put us all in time out to think about where our comfort zones are at, right? Where, where we've kind of fallen into what's familiar, what's safe, and how to kind of get, get ourselves out of that place so that we, God can fully use our lives. So I guess that means like time in. Now everybody's back. We're all back together. Thank you for being here again. The message this morning, like I said, is sustaining grace. I want to begin right away in the Word, right where we left off with Peter. So we're going to go into Acts 2. If you want to open up your Bibles or open up your, your, your tablets or your phones, it'll also be up on the screen, Acts 2, 36 through 47. So this is a snapshot of the end of Peter's message to the crowds, and then we see what happens afterwards. We see the power in his words and how it changed the church, how the church began to reflect their Savior, Jesus Christ, after Peter's words. So we'll pick up at verse 36, and it should be on the screen. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are afar off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for the, your word this morning. Thank you for this word that has been given through faithful authors who desired nothing more than for your people to return to you. Lord, we thank you for your word that you have preserved for generation upon generation upon generation. May it humble us. I ask that it would teach us, that it would preserve us, and just guide us to be holy as you are holy. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So like I said, this morning we're talking about sustaining grace. Now I'm sure, like me, many of you love a great story. That's why we latch on to our favorite book series, our favorite movie series, our favorite television series. We love one thing, right? We love drama. We all can't get enough of drama. We love the ups and downs of a good story as long as at the end of the story, it's a happy ending. Because we latch on to whoever that protagonist is, and as they face the highs and lows of life, we want the end of the story for them to be a victory, to be of success. We want that character who we've now invested in to find what they're looking for. We want to celebrate with them. Unfortunately, I think that because of these emotions that we carry throughout our lives, this need to meet our expectations, the need for our characters to have happy endings, we tend to have expectations for God's grace that way. That we, we like to have the expectations. We get to, like Dr. Stark mentioned last week, we get to have the pen, right? We get to write the ending of our story. Has anyone here heard of a man named Christopher Johnson McCandless? Anybody? All right, there's one hand. How about his self-given nickname, Alexander Supertramp? Okay, not many of you. So has anybody seen or read the book Into the Wild? This is the life story of Christopher McCandless. Christopher was born in California. His family moved to Virginia. He lived in a very well-off family. His parents, they worked for NASA and various aeronautics companies. They were upper-class citizens. He was born in a place where he didn't need much. Christopher was top in his high school when it came to athletics. He was top in his high school when it came to athletics, academics. He went on to college. He had a double major. He was successful with his degree. Basically, he had everything that he needed, and the chart, the course for his life was all set for him. He had everything that he needed. But Christopher was also somebody that everybody knew as somebody who marched to the beat of their own drum. So, when Christopher graduated in 1990 from his double major, he had an epiphany. He decided that the life that was laid out before him was no longer the life that he was meant to live. So, he discovered the freedom that he longed for by starting a new life. So what Christopher did was what we would all consider to be radical. But, it was in his radical decision that he was seeking what he was looking for. He wanted to find the destination that his life had meaning. He had that aha moment that we usually have in our lives, that aha, I know who I'm meant to be. We strive, we seek that moment in our lives to figure out who it is that we are called to be. We even spiritualize that. We have those aha moments for who God is calling us to be. So Christopher found himself in that moment. So what did Christopher do? He donated all of his savings, $25,000, to charity. He left his school. He left his hometown. He gave all of his possessions away so he owned nothing. He even took the money out of his wallet and set it on fire. So he was radical. He was all in. He was the definition at this point in the story of all in. 
He was done with that life, and he was setting off for the new life. Then he began to travel. He began to wander. He hitchhiked his way up all the way from Virginia all the way through the country and eventually made his way all the way to Alaska. He hitchhiked, he canoed, he squatted, he stole, he did whatever he needed to do. He worked some jobs here and there, but he was mainly focused on being that wanderer, experiencing that freedom that he so longed for, that destination that he longed for, to be in Alaska, to be free, to live off of the land, to be who he felt he was called to be. And he had found it. He ended up getting all the way to Alaska. He ended up in Denali National Forest where he had found an abandoned bus. He lived in the abandoned bus. He lived off of the land. He found what he was looking for in those two years of travel. He had done what he had always set out to do. And then, September 6th, 1992, a group of hunters were looking for shelter for the night when they stumbled upon Chris's new home that abandoned bus. When they entered the bus, to their surprise, they found Chris in his sleeping bag, at least what was left of Chris, because Chris had died of starvation a few weeks earlier. The end. The book is closed. The credits roll. Now, that's not the story any of us were looking for, right? That's not the happy ending that we would have written if we had control of the pen. That's not the emotional bliss that we expect at the end of that kind of a story when somebody finds what they're looking for, when somebody gives up what they had for what they seek. Up until that moment when he was found, we were all seeing ourselves in that story, that story of freedom, that story of happiness, that story of getting to where we want to be in life. So I'm not sure how to say sorry and you're welcome at the same time, but I guess you're welcome. The moral of that story and the main theme that I hope we all discover with God's grace is that spiritual experiences will fail to sustain us on our journey of grace without spiritual disciplines. Spiritual experiences will fail to sustain us on our journey of grace without spiritual disciplines. Growth in the grace of God is essential. Many of us have journeys that are marked by moments when grace found its way in our lives in significant ways. Those aha moments. We point back to those moments. We value and cherish those moments. We celebrate those moments with each other. However, we, we need to find a way to live between those significant moments, right? We saw that with Peter's life. We see that throughout Scripture, that there are those in-between moments. Just like we have to live between Jesus' resurrection and Jesus' return as his church, we need to find a way to live in God's grace in the in-between. John Wesley, who's one of our foundational influences here in the Church of the Nazarene, he understood the importance of this sustaining grace. It's what he calls and what many of us call the means of grace. This is the reality that we live in that it's, it's a necessity for consistent Christian practice. Not to earn grace, but to nurture and to nourish grace that we live into daily as followers of Jesus. These faithful practices that we're going to cover today, they don't put a cap on God's grace. They don't limit God's grace in our lives. But what it does is it positions ourselves in a way that our patterns 
in our lives are in cooperation with the Holy Spirit in a way that allows us to fully experience the entirety of God's grace, not just the highlights, not just the experiences. Like I said earlier in the story, if we look at Chris's life, he accumulated the experiential, right? He got to travel where he wanted to travel. He got to see what he wanted to see. He got to live in a way that he wanted to live. But what he lacked was the substantial. He found himself a way to get to the top of the mountain, to get where he needed to be. But he neglected in planning. He neglected in practices. He neglected to sustain himself for the new life that he had found. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with experiences that we seek. There's nothing wrong with seeking to have a spiritual experience. A moment with God that you'll never forget. But these spiritual highs are not the only way that God gives us grace. When we launch ourselves into the full gift of grace that God gives us, we begin to feel transformed. We begin to not only live the life that we seek, not only live the life that God is calling us to seek, but we're sustained for that journey. It's the parable of the soils found in Scripture. That God's grace is continually being spread into our lives, but if that soil is rocky, if that soil has weeds in it, if that soil is not deep enough to receive, we don't have the full roots of God's grace. Think of it as any relationship we can have. Think of it as a marriage. If a marriage is a spouse and a spouse continuing to, to strive for that puppy love that they once had, to try to reminisce over and over and over again of those experiences of their early love, will their relationship sustain? Is that sustainable? To constantly be trying to feel the newness of love without doing what it takes to build a self-sacrificing love, to build a love that sustains, to build a love that nurtures, that preserves, a relationship that trusts, that sacrifices, that is authentic. Those relationships need sustainable practices in our relationship with God to receive his grace, to receive his love to its fullest, also needs those sustainable practices. In any relationship, there's that initial excitement. There's that initial joy that we receive. There are epic moments of celebration. Then, if we're not sustained, there's that unexpected disappearance, that withering, that fading. If people fail to accept sustaining grace through the practices that we're going to talk about this morning, those practices of faith. Then our, then our grace, those, those experiences, that grace that God has given us, that saving grace, that sanctifying grace, then becomes a novelty. It becomes something that we remember. It becomes something that we cherish from afar off instead of something that we continue to experience in our lives. Just like Dr. Stark mentioned last week, there's often something in our lives that prevents us from fully living into God's grace. There's some situation, there's something that we're holding on to where we just can't fully let go of that pen so God can write the end of our story. We want the end of our story to be on that mountaintop. 
So we want to continue to control the narrative of our story. But since we're continuing to hold on to that control, we don't get to see the ending and the life leading up to that ending that God has for us. And whatever that thing is that maybe you, you thought about when you were in timeout, whatever that thing that you need to let go of, it's some element of control. It's some element of this part of my life is too important to me and I feel like I can control it so I can't give it up to God. It's some form of selfish control. Our time, our desires, our goals, our dreams, our legacies, all of those things that we hold on to, they all are a matter of wanting to control our lives. We need to have the pen. We want to make sure that the end of our story is what we want it to be. So what do we do? What do we need to know and do to avoid that withering, that fading away, that starvation after the experiences are gone? What we need to do is make sure that our experiential grace is met with that sustaining grace to complete our journey. The first thing we need to do and what we need to identify is our destination. I don't think anyone would disagree that the first step of any journey we are on should be to know our destination, right? Before we determine the route, before we determine anything that we're going to need for our trip, we need to know where we're going. We need to know the end. And we know from Scripture as a follower of Jesus, we have that destination. In John 14, verses 1 through 6, it says this, These are the words of Jesus. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. For my Father's house has many rooms, and if that were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and I prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you with me to also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. And then Thomas, he said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. So how can we know the way? In which Jesus answered, which I'm sure many of us have heard this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we see from Jesus himself that our faith, our belief in him, grants us access to that destination. We have that destination in eternity with him building his kingdom. The saving grace of God through Jesus, that's our destination. Eternity with him is our destination. The restoration of all of creation, that's our destination. So that solves the problem with destination, right? We know where we're going. Well, not quite. Because what else do we know? about a destination. If I have on my GPS my destination, or if I'm looking at a map and I can point to my destination, what else do I need to know so I can know where I'm going? My current location. In order to get where God wants me to be, I need to know where I am right now before I take that next step. See, if we're going to figure out 
how to get to where we know where we're going, it needs to be a walk of faith. It needs to be the path that Jesus gave us. It needs to be a path to holiness. Until we understand that, until we reconcile that in our hearts, that I need to know where I am and I need to be honest with God and with the church where I am, how will I know what next step to take? See, Dr. Starkey referenced this as well, that we need moments of course correction. We talked about it a while back as well in our last series. Those moments where we need to figure out where we are before we take our next step. Because otherwise what ends up happening is we chase our emotions. We chase our feelings. I know that I want to be with God. I know that I want to live a life that's pleasing to God. I know I want to fulfill my purpose and reach my destination. But if I follow what I'm feeling at that moment, that could change. Because I could say, well, I, it feels like this is where I need to go. And then when that feeling fades, then, it, well, maybe this wasn't the right place to go. So then I, well, this feels right. This looks right. This sounds right. But then when I get there, it feels like I'm further away than I was before. And we just continue to chase those feelings, whether they take us further away from God or towards God, but we're not really on the path that he has laid for each and every one of us. So we need to know exactly where we are. Many Christians today, we, we walk in circles because we've misread our location on the map. Let's take the passage from Acts that we find Peter preaching to the gospel. The results of Peter's message were thousands of people being saved, thousands of people coming to Christ. What does that sound like? That sounds like a revival, right? And we pray and we pray and we pray for revival. We seek revival. Thousands of people deciding to follow Jesus. Thousands of people identifying and accepting their destination back to God. And we celebrate that. Because they knew their destination. But if they stayed in that place of celebration, if they stayed in that stage of initial discovery that Jesus is Lord, would they just end up being stuck reminiscing about Peter's message? Stuck just thinking how great it was to hear the message of Jesus without experiencing relationship with Jesus. We hear a lot about the church needing revival, and I, I get it. I understand the desires for more fervor for God, for more excitement and renewal in the church. I totally understand that. But what does the word revival really imply? It means that something's dead. You can't revive something that's already alive, we revive dead things back to life. So if we find ourselves in a, a continual state of crying out for revival, there has to be a recognition that there's something in our lives or something in the church's existence that's dead and that needs revival. So when we're praying and when we're asking God to give us more grace to show his face to us, maybe we need to include in our prayers as the psalmist did. In Psalm 139, when he said, Search me, God. Know my heart. Test me. And know my anxious thoughts. 
See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. See, to me, that, that sounds more like a prayer of revival because that's, that's opening ourselves up to God and saying, what's dead? Not asking for a general revival, but asking him to look into us and say, where am I off track? If we ask him to lead us in the way of everlasting, with that comes an admission that maybe we've lost our way. Maybe we're not sure of what that next step is that we need to take. So if we feel the need for revival, if we crave revival in the church, in our communities, in the world, even just in our own individual lives, if we feel the grace of God withering, maybe God is trying to tell us that we're searching and we're focusing and we're leaning too much on the experiences that he gives us without actually seeking some of the things that sustain us. Maybe we've lost track of the means of grace to keep us on the path to everlasting. So let's talk about those means, the means of grace, identifying our means. In his book, After You Believe, N.T. Wright refers to Christ-like character as this. He says it's the long yet steady growth in grace that comes as a result of spiritual practices and habits formed in a person's life that transforms us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. If you want to be prepared for each step, we've identified where we are, we identified where we're going, and we want to identify the next step. If we want to have everything that Jesus has given us for the journey ahead, we need to have these spiritual practices in our lives. If we want to avoid the spiritual fate that is, is comparable to the, the physical fate of Christopher McCandless, right? Withered, starved, dead. If we want to avoid that spiritually in our lives, we need to make sure that we have practices in place, that we have sustenance in place to carry us every step of the way. We need to have what's called spiritual disciplines. And I know all the air in the room probably just lifted out because I said disciplines. Because we don't like to be disciplined, right? I'm not a child anymore. Discipline's what I get to do to my kids, but I'm an adult. I'm a big boy. I can make my own decisions, right? I don't want to be disciplined. I want to eat ice cream every night of the week. It's fine. We all need disciplines. We've we got to understand the significance of these disciplines, though. These disciplines are what changes us. These disciplines are what shapes us. These disciplines help us to recognize what God's grace in our life actually is. It's really a gift. His grace is a gift for us to be receiving continually, but then also giving continually. It's that flow of his grace, that sustaining grace that sustains me, that sustains you, that sustains all of us. When we understand grace to be a gift, we understand that these exercises are not to make up for God's lack of grace, and they're not to earn God's grace, but they just make us capable of receiving God's grace. 
They make us free to be able to walk the path that God has given us, knowing that we have what will sustain us. These activities make us positioned and poised for even more of God's power through the Holy Spirit. See, we work in cooperation with the Holy Spirit. We release power to the Holy Spirit so then he can empower us, making us capable of really following the path that Jesus has us on. Uh, in Dallas Willard's book, The Spirit of the Disciplines, he categorizes all these different spiritual disciplines into two groups, and they're of equal importance. There's the disciplines of abstinence, and then there's the disciplines of engagement. And abstinence is another word that everyone, <gasps> abstinence, but it, it's, it's not abstinence of one specific thing. It's a spiritual abstinence. So abstinence is solitude, silence, fasting, frugality, chastity, secrecy, and sacrifice. And then engagement you see is study, worship, celebration, service, prayer, fellowship, confession, and submission. Now, realistically, we could do 15 sermons just on each of those disciplines. But for the sake of time, I wanted to, to kind of do a broad brush painting, especially of the disciplines of abstinence. Because I think it's one that really challenges where we are as a culture. It it's, it's, what, it's what separates the church from society. It's what separates our destination from where we are as a culture. We look at something like solitude, providing us a space to be alone with God, removed from outside influences, silence, giving us a break from the unending noise of our culture so that we can hear the often still, small voice of God. Fasting. Giving us an opportunity to remind ourselves in our humanity, we are constantly in need of God. Frugality. It combats the spirit of greed that keeps the machine going that self-preservation that we receive from birth on, the need to have what we want in every single area of our life, especially in our culture here in the West. Chastity. It frees us from the broken patterns of this world where we see our brothers and sisters as objects. We don't see each other as fellow image bearers of God, but we see each other as something that's an object of attraction, as something we can use for our gratification. Secrecy teaches us how to re reject the spirit of pride. Like Jesus modeled, where he went away, he did things in secret. He healed, but he didn't make big proclamations about it. He went alone and he prayed to his father without anyone else being there. We need to have those moments of secrecy because if our Christian walk becomes something where if we're not on a platform, we're not living in a way that's glorifying to God, we don't receive the grace that God wants us to receive in those moments. Our faith needs to not just be public, but our faith needs to be in secret. And if we feel that any of our habits, any of our pursuits, 
even if they're harmless, even if they're totally fine from any perspective, if it's keeping us from God and it's sinking into our lives deeper than the patterns that were given from Jesus, if we're feeling like we're being led by the world more than we're being led by the Holy Spirit, maybe we need to practice disciplines of abstinence in our lives. Now, I know the first list is definitely a means of grace that focuses on what to give up. But if we're looking for something to sustain us on a journey, it's not just what we have to give up, right? It's what we need. What do we need? What are our supplies? What is going to help carry us on this journey? That's where you see the disciplines of engagement. And it's simple. If we want to receive sustaining grace from God, we need to posture our lives that remains in him. You can't buy a ticket to receive God's grace to sustain you on the journey. A song, a sermon, an experience alone will not sustain us enough to carry us on this journey. If we want to continue that party that we see in Scripture that, that takes place, when we've given our life to Jesus and everyone is celebrating because another child has returned home, if we want that party to continue... We need to have what it takes to sustain our lives here on earth. Because like we've said, when we, accept, when we accept Christ, when we accept his initial saving grace, we don't just immediately get zapped to be with Jesus. We still have a life ahead of us. We still have problems. We still have issues. We still have burdens. We have unexpected turns that life takes. We can't just pray and hope for an experience that will fast forward our lives. We need sustaining grace that remains with us as we remain in him. Those disciplines of engagement, they're simple. We need to spend time in his word, spending time worshiping the Lord, thanksgiving, celebration, serving others outside of ourselves, communicating with our Heavenly Father in prayer, spending time with our brothers and sisters in the faith like we are here today. Confessing our missteps to God and then submitting to a process of forgiveness, repentance, and reconciliation. See, these disciplines, these practices, they're what nourish our spirits. It's what supplies that grace that our hearts need. Think of it through the lens of Peter. So Peter... He went from a fisherman, just a nobody, just a working class guy, just kind of an outcast, from a fisher to an evangelist that built the church. He didn't just transform from being a fisherman to being a founding father, if you would, of the faith, just by an experience alone. In 1 Peter 2, he tells us, that like newborn babies craving spiritual milk, we need that craving so that we can be grown up in our salvation. Now that we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, so now that we've tasted and seen salvation in our experience, we need to continue to be fed by that grace. Like I said earlier, nothing that I'm saying this morning is a matter of falling out of God's grace. It's not about doing what we need to do to earn what Christ has already given to us. But at the same time, 
what we're talking about is not quenching the Holy Spirit and what he wants to do in our lives. When you see someone who's at the pinnacle of physical health, you know that it took what? It took discipline. Like I pay, I have receipts for my membership at the YMCA, but that membership does not improve my health. It's the practices, it's the discipline that brings us to a good physical health, and it's the practices and it's the discipline that brings us spiritual health, that allows us to receive God's sustaining grace. When, when Paul in, in Scripture talks about this duality between being drunk and being filled with the Holy Spirit, we, we have to not only use that as a scripture about not getting drunk with wine because there's a flip side to that. He's talking about basically being drunk with the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Holy Spirit so much to the point that we lose control, right? When we're drunk, we lose control. When we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we surrender that control. So the Holy Spirit can change our lives. And we get filled with the Spirit. We position ourselves in a place to be filled through those practices, through having that spiritual diet that gets us to the point where the Holy Spirit takes control. Does anybody remember the nugget of wisdom that Snickers brought us? What was the slogan for Snickers? Betty White did it. Um, who else did it? I don't remember who else did it, but it was, what was the slogan for Snickers? You're not you when you're hungry. There's a lot of wisdom to that, right? I'm not myself. I'm not, I'm not my best self, certainly, when I'm hungry. We're talking about physical, right? But the same thing goes with spiritual. We can't truly be who God is calling us to be if our spirits are hungry for something that we're not open to receiving. The interesting thing about the disciplines of engagement, the second half of those disciplines, is they are absolutely important when we're in isolation, when we're by ourselves, but really to fully embrace, to fully appreciate, to fully experience those disciplines, they need to be done in the context of the church, within the context of the body of Christ, which is why the last point is identify our companions. Let's go back to Acts 2, and let's start in verse 42. This is where we see the church not only experience saving grace, but we see what happens to a church that fully embraces sustaining grace. In verse 42, it says this, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Friends, if we attempt to live the Christian life, this, this life of holiness, alone, we're going to end up just like Christopher McCandless. We're going to end up alone. 
we're going to end up withered away, unable to sustain ourselves through the highs and the lows of this life. We talked about this truth in, the, in our series on the fruit of the Spirit, how the fruit of the Spirit really doesn't take place in your life unless it's something that you're giving and you're receiving. The fruit of the Spirit is not meant for us to hoard. Well, these practices, these disciplines that provide us with sustaining grace also aren't meant to be practiced alone. And I get it. I, I, I totally understand. Everyone has a story. Everyone's living in that story right now. We all have lives that are busy and chaotic and we have struggles and issues and it feels like we can't find the time to really invest in what we want to invest in. But at the same time, if we're feeling as though we don't have the sustenance in our spirits to really feel connected in our relationship with Christ, that's when we need to realize what we need to sustain us. So it's not a matter of just throwing away our circumstances and ignoring the fact that there are difficulties in life, but it's accepting the reality that sometimes experiences can't make up for that. Sometimes we need practices. Sometimes we need to invest in what's going to sustain us. We can't just hang on to the ticket stubs of salvation without collectively engaging in these dis disciplines together. So we can share the fruit of the Spirit. So the grace that I receive, I can then give to you. And then the grace that you receive can be given to him and to her and all the way through so we can sustain each other by being open to the grace that God wants to freely give us. But in order to do that, we have to have the right posture. We have to have the right practices. We have to have the right principles, the disciplines, in order to receive so then we can give. We can only talk about this grace, we can only highlight these convictions because we believe that Jesus paid for that grace, right? We didn't earn his grace. We didn't show up at the right event to receive his grace, although that's part of our stories. Jesus already paid for that grace. He already gave us that grace. He's just wanting us to fully embrace it and receive it. He spent time with his closest followers and modeled this for them at the Last Supper. How to live our lives as one in remembrance of the grace of Jesus. So as we close out this service this morning together as the church, we're going to receive grace. And it's through communion. So I'm going to ask if Zach would come up. And he'll begin to play something in the background as we grab our elements. And if you didn't grab one of these this morning, there are some in the back. As we partake of communion this morning, this is a practice of sustaining grace. It's not a formality. It's not because these little cups are neat. This is us coming together, united as the body of Christ, reminding ourselves that we continue to need the gift that he gave us through his life and his death and his resurrection. Communion is a call 
for us to regularly come together as the church, to regularly live and pattern our lives in remembrance, participation in the grace of God through practicing communion together. It's done collectively, reminding us that together as a community, we're dependent on the grace of God. And it's an act of receiving because we don't take these elements. We don't earn these elements. We receive them as a representation of what we receive from Jesus if we posture our lives in a way to fully receive his grace. 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26 says this as you take the bread. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup. After supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. As we finished our time here at the table, may we now as the church turn towards the world, turn towards our destination with the grace of Jesus Christ fresh on our lips and fresh on our hearts. Let's stand together as we pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we ask that as we have spent time in your word, this time of remembrance of the grace of Jesus, Lord, I just pray that your, your spirit would just continue to pry at our hearts and our lives. And I pray that wherever we find ourselves, Wherever our current location on this journey of life we find ourselves, Lord, I just ask that your spirit will lead us to whatever that next step is. That next step to you, Father. That next step to holiness. That next step to who it is you're calling us to be. Lord, we come before you and we humbly ask. And Lord, we faithfully trust that your grace is always sufficient for us. Lord, we ask that you would just fill us again with your love and your grace. As we continue to live the life that you have given us today. That our circumstances, although they change, and as our experiences come and fade, that we would just remain in you, Lord Jesus. That we would remain in your grace that sustains us. Reveal to us what we may need to give up and reveal to us what we may need to take on in our lives. Not for pride, not for earning anything, not for gaining any own strength, 
but just so we can receive more from you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you so much for being here again. If you're taking place or you're taking part in our on-ramps, they're in room 105 for everybody else. God bless. Have a great week and love your neighbors.